If you have your scriptures with you, open them to John chapter 4. And uh, we're going to read this. It's a rather long passage, but um, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. There's an insert in your bulletin. You're welcome to use that as well. And uh, as, as I read uh, this passage, try to imagine in your mind what this must have looked like. Uh, for us, I think it's a, perhaps a little difficult to put ourselves back in that time uh, of the past, but this would have been a very significant event for a man to have stopped at a well and spoken to a woman uh, without other people present. It, even if other people had been present, it would have been highly unusual, whereas today in our modern world, we don't think much about that. But in that day, it was very unusual, very unusual for a Jewish man to be speaking to a Samaritan woman or a woman of another nationality. And so as you imagine this scene, just uh, think about it, think about the words, and now hear uh, the word of God. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town uh, of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have uh, given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come to this well to to draw. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband And come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What is you that you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. You know, I don't know all of you, your stories. Many of you I do. I've been here long enough and have gotten to know you well enough how you became a Christian. But one thing I do know, while I don't know all the details, every one of you that are here today, everyone, even the little children, even the little ones, the young children, you are here because somebody met you at a well and told you something about Christ. Now, if you're a little child, you're here today because your parents brought you, but you're here because your parents are telling you about Jesus. And if you're an older person, maybe you grew up in the church and got disillusioned, left the church, and then you found your way back at some time later. You're here because someone met you at a well and told you about Christ, gave you the gospel. No matter who you are, we all share remarkably almost every one of the details that's in this story of God coming to us in our thirst, in our weariness, and in our sin. This woman had been married five times and was living with the sixth guy. In our darkest place, He comes to us at a well and He meets us and He brings us into His kingdom. And that, my friends, that is why you're here today. And why we are taking this plunge, this risk into the future on 1500 Wrestler with this beautiful building that God has provided us. He's calling us to a certain purpose. And that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. Our heart's passion, our greatest joy of this church, the purpose, why we exist. Why does Christ, why does... El Paso need another church? Aren't there enough? We exist for a specific reason. To exalt the glorious majesty of Jesus, our King, by enjoying Him now and throughout the ages to come. That's why we exist. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Our vision, what we are seeking to accomplish, is to bring the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus and the good news of His Kingdom to El Paso, the Southwest, and wherever our influence may extend. So that's, that's what we want to accomplish. We want to expand the kingdom of God in our city, in our, our state, in our country, and in our world. Today we're going to talk about the mission, the mission of the church. And the way that I'm going to define mission, and a lot of our military folks will 
understand this, the mission is how we will achieve the vision or the objective. How are we going to go about getting from point A to point B? How are we going to bring the transforming power of the gospel to our city? What are the nuts and bolts of it? So we're going to look at this over the next few weeks as we ramp up to moving to our new location. Christ the King, listen, this is our mission statement for Christ the King, will achieve her vision by winsomely evangelizing the lost, intentionally making mature and equipped believers, and aggressively sending workers into the harvest fields through missions, church planting, and Christian education. Someone put it this way, our commissioning is together in venture. In other words, we're to go do these things together. The, the church does not pay me uh, to do these things on your behalf. Although, you know, I do some of that. But I don't do it on your behalf. I do it on behalf of Jesus Christ the King. And so, in that place, we are all level. It's all equal. We're all there doing the same things. Our mission is the same. To do this for our great King. I have certain gifts and skills, you have certain gifts and skills, and we are to all be employing them together. Our commissioning is together in venture. We're not acting alone. You see, we're not to be doing this individually. We're to be doing it together. Hence, when Jesus says, I am with you, this is from Matthew 28, the the Great Commission, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The stress is on I am with you. Do you see we're never alone? We are together, but we are also also together in Jesus Christ, bringing this mission, this vision, and this accomplishing this mission. And we're going to talk over the next few weeks uh, around three three basic heads: evangelism, discipleship, and sending. And the way that I'm going to define these. This is basically from our journey material, the discipleship material that we use here at Christ the King uh, from Randy Pope. And the, the, the way that we de- define evangelism is this way. We're going to take people of non-faith, in other words, they're not connected to the Christian faith. They may be a member of another faith or maybe they don't have any faith or searching, seeking, whatever you, label you want to put on it. Somebody from non-faith to faith. That's what we're going to call evangelism. Discipleship, on the other hand, is different. Discipleship is taking someone who has faith to maturity. Faith to maturity. So there's non-faith to faith. Then there's faith to maturity. And then finally, sending is taking people that are uh, faith to mature, mature people who are equipped and ready to go, taking those people and sending them out. Now, This may involve missions where you literally are being sent out to another culture, maybe another land, another place, another group of people. But it could be just people in your neighborhood, people at your work, people where your kids play sports. What we say in the journey is where you live, work, and play. I think Rick mentioned it in his prayer this morning, where you live, work, and play. Your entire life, you're on mission. You're out there. You're bringing the gospel to the world, either verbally or how you're living, whatever the case may be. Your life, both in your words and your deeds, are carrying a message to the world. And this is why Christians are to be very circumspect 
not just in their behavior, but in how they talk about the world around them and how they talk about themselves. I've said week after week now, I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. I was in the gutter of life. And that's my story, folks. I was in the gutter of life. And he reached down into the filth of my sin, my brokenness, my woundedness, my evil, And He lifted me up and He did not come away unscathed Himself, but rather He carried with Him all that filth, all those wounds, all that pain. He brought it with Him to get me clean. He had to get dirty. To get me free of sin, He had to become sin for me and as me. He had to literally enter into my sin and bear the weight of it so that I could be free. That's the gospel. That's the message that we have. That's the transforming power that will literally change you from the inside out. Instead of us merely uh, uh, being a church where we just beat away at people's wills and try to force them to be something. And behave, behave, behave. Be like this one. Be like that one. And just set up this whole impossible paradigm of people to live up to. Instead of being a church like this, we tell people, come. Come and meet the Master. Come and meet this glorious King. He will set you free so that you can then embrace whatever behavior He wants to apply. But if you make it about behavior first, you lose the Gospel. You just become another moral Another moralist. And the world's full of moralism. That's not what we're talking about. So what comes to mind when I say the word evangelism? I hope we can get through all this today. But what comes to mind? Some of you, evangelism is like the worst thing we could possibly be talking about. Oh my God, he's going to have us going door to door in that new neighborhood. Oh, what are we going to do? And some of you are saying, oh yeah, give me a handful of tracts. I can't wait to go share the gospel with people. And both of those types of people, the ones that say they love evangelism and just can't wait to get out there and convert everybody, and the ones that say, oh, I can't hate it, both of them are dangerous. They're both dangerous. And uh, we've all been in one of those places or another at some point in our lives. But if you say, oh, I love evangelism, I can't wait to convert the lost, listen carefully, because I'm going to tell you you're dangerous. And at the same time, if you're one of those that's kind of holding back and saying, you know, people are going to reject me, they're going to ask me questions, I don't know the answer, blah, blah, whatever it is, you also need to listen and take courage and have, uh, take heart. When it comes to evangelism, our minds go in all different kinds. Maybe you're thinking of Billy Graham crusade. I went to a Billy Graham crusade in Albuquerque years ago. I was 18 years old. Uh, maybe you're thinking of door-to-door. Maybe you're thinking of passing out tracts. Uh, maybe you're thinking of what we call the confrontational monologue, uh, where uh, like R.C. Sproul says, uh, somebody grabs you and, by the lapels and says, Brother, are you saved? And R.C. said, Saved from what? Saved from you? Yeah, I'd like to be saved from you. You know, what are, are, is it confrontational monologue where you're going to do all the talking? I tell my journey leaders that if you're talking in your group, more than... F- of the time, if you're doing 85% of the talking and your guys are just sitting there listening to you, you don't belong in the journey. Journey leaders, leadership is really talking less and listening more. And so, 
Is it confrontational monologue where you're doing all the talking? Is it what recently has become popular relationship evangelism where you just make friends and get all cuddly and warm with people and hopefully they'll come along? Is it that? Is it apologetics? When you think of uh, some of you are really excited about apologetics. I am. I love apologetics. And do we think of apologetics as the means of evangelism? In other words, I'm going to talk to people, but my conversation is going to be about holding forth boldly the truths of the, of the gospel and arguing them into the kingdom. Where true apologetics is that we are to give an answer to what? Exactly. We are to be giving answers to their questions. In other words, the relationship has developed to such an extent that you're actually able to answer a question. Not just give a spiel about the four spiritual laws or something else. I came to Christ through a track of the four spiritual laws that someone gave me. That's how I came to Jesus. And I was kneeling by my bed with that track and a pistol because I was going to kill myself. I didn't want to live anymore. And that may be shocking to some of you, but that's where I was at that point in my life as an 18-year-old alcoholic, a drunk who couldn't get through a day without drinking at 18 years old. And I was there. And I wanted to die. And I said, you know, I'm going to end my life. And I took out the track and I read through it there and I just... I prayed the prayer at the end, you know, Jesus is at the door knocking. We like to mock that now because we're too smart. Jesus knocked at the door, let me in. I said yes, and the desire to die went to the back, and the desire to live came from Him, and He drew me in, you see, to the living water. So is it apologetics? It could be any number of things. What do you think of? So we're going to look at evangelism very quickly and I'll try to try to get through it. If we don't finish, we'll do a little bit more next week if necessary. Evangelism, evangelizing the lost, this part of mission, it's going to involve at least three things. It's going to involve many more things, but I've reduced them to three things that I think will help you. First is risk. Evangelism is going to take a certain amount of risk on your part. In other words, if you're the one that says, I love evangelism, I got to get out there and I got to convert the lost, then you need to probably, the risk is going to be, are you willing to be mentored and guided and, and held back if necessary by someone who's wiser than you so that you don't go out there and do destruction and damage? I, I bet if we stopped right now and I just started asking you to tell your stories about damage that was done to you by somebody that was overzealous Yes? Am I the only one? Someone who was overzealous, who pushed too hard. Are you willing to take the risk of having someone rein you back in and help equip you and get you back? Are you one of the ones like me? I hated door-to-door evangelism. I still do. I don't particularly like it. I'm not good at it. That's why I'm not like it. Don't like it. Are you willing to take the risk? Okay, so it's risky. Secondly, it's going to require relationship. If you see evangelism simply as making converts and checking it off your list, and as soon as somebody rejects you or tells you no or I'm not interested, you just end your relationship with them and go to the next door. 
If that's what evangelism is to you, you're going to be very unhappy at Christ the King. Because we're going to say you need to take risks, but you also need to have relationship. You need to be willing to spend the time with somebody to hear their story. And hopefully to be able to tell yours. But to hear them, what are they really saying? What really has gone on in their life? And are they have, do they even have any questions for you? Or are you just talking, talking, talking? Do you see? It's going to take relationship. Finally, it's going to take revelation. You're going to have to come to that person, not just with risk and relationship, you've got to have something to say to them. A, a revelation, and the revelation is the revelation of Jesus. So let's look at them quickly, and then if I need to, we'll recap again next week. I can see we're going to run a little short of time. Evangelism requires risk. These are these verses uh, in, early in the story of the woman by the well. Jesus risks by even opening the dialogue with this woman. He runs the risk of being rejected and rebuffed by her. You see, it would have been entirely proper for this woman not even to have answered him. She answered him kind of a, I don't know, we don't really know the tone, but it seems like she answered him in kind of a, a, a snappy way. In other words, she was, she was trying to push him back. You know, why are you asking me for water? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're not supposed to be talking to me. You guys think you're better than us. And so he, he ran the risk, even opening the dialogue, he ran the risk of being rebuffed and rejected by her. And folks, I'm the first one to say uh, that that's a real fear for all of us. I think everybody has a certain degree, uh, perhaps you're on the low end and you don't care what people think of you, or maybe you're very approval-driven like me. i got to have approval. And if I don't get approval, I feel totally rejected. Ask my wife. I'll go days in mourning and sackcloth and ashes if somebody doesn't like me. And it's not because I think so much of them. People that are living by approvals because they, they, are, they love themselves. And they think so highly of themselves that when somebody rejects them, they're just devastated. And so I, I know what that fear is. But that's part of the risk. And, and hopefully the church can help and we can help each other cross that threshold of risk. Secondly, he risked criticism from others. It was unheard of what he did. It's so hard for us to get back into that mindset to get back into that ancient world, but try if you can. But it was impossible for a man to speak to a woman in those days, especially this woman who was on the margins of that society. Uh, the rabbis in the, in the uh, Jewish literature says this, it's better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. That's the kind of scorn that they had across the genders and across races. And not just, it wasn't Jews that were racial. Uh, everybody was racist in those days. Everybody had a bias in those days. And, and same today, 21st we like to pride ourselves saying we don't have that, but we do, folks. We have social bias, we have gender bias, we have every kind of bias there is. And so the reality is there that these divisions are very profound in the world. And it was that way in Jesus' day. He was speaking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and not only just any Samaritan woman, a sketchy one at that. She had a past. 
He violates all the cultural norms, the accepted Jewish piety. In other words, what was acceptable for a holy man in the Jewish world was to be not even... T- if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you know in the, in the marriage, they're dancing, the marriage uh, wedding ceremony, they're dancing and they get the rabbi, this venerable old rabbi with the beard out on the dance floor and he's dancing and he's got his eyes closed and he's really into it and then they hook him up with a woman and he's got her... Because the men and women dance separately in separate circles. And somehow they joined the circles, you know, it was revolutionary. And, and so he, finally he kind of looks around to see who's dancing with him. It's a woman and he freaks out. He can't believe he's holding her hand. That was unheard of. So he lets her go. And in typical, gracious, God-fearing fashion, he pulls his handkerchief out of his pocket and he twirls it and he gives it to her so that she's holding one end of the handkerchief while he holds the other so they can dance. Don't you love that? See, he had enough of godly wisdom in him to know that it's probably okay to dance, but maybe I shouldn't touch her. You see, beautiful. Jesus violates that piety. He, he goes against it. He, he, he takes the risk and makes a relationship with this woman. It's absolutely beautiful. The disciples, of course, they come back in verse 27 and following. It's, it's, they're astonished. How can he be talking? But they had enough respect for Jesus that they, they knew him well enough and they didn't question him. But they were astonished. And listen to this. I, I love this from Matthew Henry. Listen to what he says so that we can bring this all into perspective about the risk that Jesus took to reach out to this woman. Listen to what Henry says. The disciples marveled. They were astonished that Jesus should condescend to talk to such a poor, contemptible woman. But it never occurred to them to marvel and be astonished that He would talk to them. Forgetting what despicable men they were, you see, but when we, we sit back and we judge what's going on around, how could he talk to that person? How could he do those things? How could he hang out at those places? How could he be that person? And we don't realize, how can we look at that person when Jesus spoke to us, condescended to speak to us? How could we possibly judge? And Matthew Henry catches that. He says, they're, they're astonished he's talking to her, but they weren't astonished that he would talk to them. What did they have to think of themselves to put themselves above her? Do you see it? It's remarkable. That's the kind of risk. This is non-faith, what we call non-faith to faith. This is going to somebody that is outside of our tribe, outside of our circle, outside of our comfort, and actually taking a risk. You know, I was in a a class at RTS, at at seminary, and Dan Allender came. Uh, Some of you know Dan Allender. He's written many, many books, wonderful books. And he was giving a talk on uh, uh, sexual abuse, particularly women that are sexually abused. And all of the students were there. All of the Master of Divinity students were there. All of the counseling students were there. And just and everybody else. All the classes were there, different majors and different uh, groups. And the question of counseling came up. This came from a counseling student. The Divinity students didn't ask. What should we do? A male student said, what should I do if I have a woman who's been sexually abused and she comes to my office at the church and she wants to meet with me privately? 
Should I go into the office and close the door and draw the blinds so that she can have privacy? You all know what I'm talking about, right? Because a man should not meet with a woman alone without the door being opened and the draw blinds being up, right? So that the secretary can watch and make sure no hanky-panky is going on in there, right? And Dan Allender looked at this student and said, sure, go ahead and do that. And while you're at it, take a baseball bat and beat her to death. Because what you're saying to her is you're unclean. And I can't meet with you because the risk is too great. I can't take a relationship because the risk... Somebody might say something if the door is shut and the blinds are closed and I'm meeting with the woman in my office. How dare we? And if you have scruples about that, go ahead and leave your doors open and your windows open and let everybody see. Don't do any counseling though. Because people are broken and they need you. Are you willing to take the risk? Is there a risk? The risk is real. Yes. People may talk. They may say, oh, look, he's talking to that woman. Or, oh, she's talking to that guy. Are you willing to take the risk? Are you willing to let your reputation be called into question? Jesus did it. How are we any better than him? Now, am I saying be foolish? No, of course not. But don't take a baseball bat and beat somebody to death when they are hurting and wounded and they need you. And all you're worried about is protecting yourself. If that's the case, don't take the risk. Don't build the relationship because it will only hurt someone. Taking a risk is messy. It requires a lot of wisdom. You can't just be frivolous about it. You can't be cavalier. But at the same time, it, it's, going to be, it's going to push you on the margins and you have to take some chances. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing? Very quickly, I'm just going to introduce these last two. We'll pick it up next week. Evangelism is going to require relationship. He starts the relationship by this. Folks, you've got to love this. He asks her for something. In other words, he asks her for her help. <laughs> Can you imagine that? The God of the universe, the one who slung everything into existence, is tired and thirsty and he's sitting by a well because he's worn out. And he's thirsty. And a woman comes and he asks her, give me something. We're so quick to ask and want, give me, give me, give me from other people. We don't stop and think about what we could ask, you know, what we should be asking people to give us. And he asks her this and opens up the possibility of a relationship. Then after he does that, he offers her something in return, which would have been completely normal in the Middle East. In that world, you would ask for something, they would give you, and then you would in turn give them something back. And of course, what she receives is way beyond what uh, what he got from her, the water. He needed physical water. She needed him to quench hers. And then finally, I'm going to jump down here, folks, to the last part, and then we'll, cover, we'll go back over it. So be sure to come back next week uh, for, the, for the rest of this. Evangelism requires risk. It requires relationship, which Jesus opened up with her by asking her for something and then giving her something in return. And finally, it requires revelation. The purpose, the whole purpose 
of taking the risks that I have suggested, building the relationships that I hope we can all begin building in this neighborhood out there in in West El Paso. The whole purpose is to reveal somebody, not a place. Let me say it again and with all of the vigor that I can put into it with my weak voice today. When we move, this is not in any way about this building, as beautiful it is. And I stood there yesterday with Rick and Sal, and I'm just marveling, how did we ever get this building? But it's not about the building, as nice as it is. It's about a person. Do you know the building would be... Do you know how many churches are empty today, beautiful cathedrals all over this world? Because they started to think it was about the building and about the institution and about the religion itself, about their doctrinal positions, which those of us in the reform world, we are, we are so close to that danger, I can't even tell you. We want to make it all about John Calvin. We want to make it all about election and all about predestination and the Westminster. And those things are all beautiful. I love them. I've devoted my life to them, folks. But if we reduce it to that and we, be, and we go from being a, a movement of the gospel to being an institution that lives in a building and, and cloisters itself in a building, we lose the gospel. It's not about that. It's about revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ to the world, to where the people are. They don't need a building as nice as it is. They need Him. And to get Him, listen to this, to get Him, they need you. He could have, he could have gotten a, 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 an airplane and written in the sky, come to Jesus. But He chose to write His words on your heart and my heart, on our lives, your lives, together, so that everywhere we go, where we live, work, and play, everywhere we are, the gospel is written on our lives, in our words, in our speech, in our actions. Word and deed, they go together. And when people see that, it becomes winsome and attractive. They don't see us as being judgmental. They see us as being broken people that need that same relationship with Jesus Christ. Our need of Him transcends everything else. And when we communicate that to a lost world, they can't help. It's not a place. It's a person. It's substance over form. Substance over form. There's no mistake, let me close with this, that chapter 4 of John follows immediately what chapter? Those of you that are good with arithmetic. 4 is preceded by what? Three, preceded by. Okay. Excuse my, my probably bad explanation, or maybe I didn't word it right. Three, chapter three, precedes chapter four. What happened in chapter three of John, all of you biblical scholars? What? Exactly, John 3.16. Now, the only verse anybody knows. Nicodemus. So John is intentionally contrasting a highly respected Jewish man, a Pharisee, a very wise and venerable Pharisee who comes to Jesus by night and and tries to enter into a dialogue. 
And, and we have no indication at all that Nicodemus did anything after he met with Jesus that would have increased or expanded the kingdom of God, at least not until the end of the Gospels where we see him showing up to help bury Jesus. Nicodemus had become a follower of Jesus by the end of the Gospels. It's contrasted directly with this woman at the well in the very next chapter of 4. A disreputable woman. No honor, no glory, no nothing. In fact, she was completely on the margins where Nicodemus would have been accepted by everybody. In fact, if Nicodemus came to this church, we would beg, oh God, please let him join Christ the King. Our, our value will go up by miles if he would just join Christ the King. These are the people we're looking for. See, we're looking for the good, clean, law-abiding, conservative Republicans. Make sure they're not, they don't have an Obama sticker on their car. God forbid. They're not welcome here. You see? Oh, if we could just get more of those people. Really? Do any of you think that? Please say no altogether. Oh, not that we don't want those people. I mean, they're welcome here too, but not really. We, no, of course they are. We were, some of us were with them. Some of us are the legalists and the elder brothers and all spit polished and cleaned up and, you know. We want all people to come to Jesus Christ. But the reality is that everybody, everyone, even Nicodemus was the least, the last, and the lost. Yes? He was just as, he was just as lost as the woman at the well. And Jesus welcomed him So listen to this. Let me close with this. Charles Spurgeon. What a master. By Sychar's well, talked the woman, the Samaritan, by Sychar's well, he talked to the Samaritan woman. If you can cast, if if you can not cast on the mountain, sorry, if thou canst not on the mountain preach a sermon, Utter the praises of Jesus in the house, if not in the temple, in the field, if not on the exchange, in the midst of thine own household, if thou canst not in the midst of the great family of man, from the hidden springs within let sweetly flowing rivulets of testimony flow forth, giving drink to every passerby. He says, if you can't do it in the temple, Do it out in the wilderness. If you can't do it in the exchange or in your business, do it somewhere else. But wherever you are, where you live, work, and play, give a drink to every passerby. And that comes from the man who cried from the cross, I thirst. And no one gave him any drink. He died thirsty. He died alone. He died for you and I as us in our place so that we could without fear take the risk, build the relationships and bring them the living water. Will you do it? Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness and mercy this day. Every one of us were thirsty and dying, fatigued from the weight of our sin and the chains that so... Uh, bitterly afflicted us and weighed us down. And Father, 
in your mercy and in your kindness, you stepped into our lives purely and merely by grace and rescued us from that grave, from that fiery pit of judgment. And you did it because you loved us and your son took our sin upon himself on the cross. And I pray, Holy Father, that you will have mercy on us and grant us your grace according to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.